Good morning. Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, it's been a number of years now um, that I've felt the Lord leading me to preach a sermon on this subject. Uh, it comes in light of the mass confusion that, that sort of um, encircles this time of year, more particularly why Jesus came. And uh, this morning, uh, we're going to set the record straight. And so the great question this morning before us is, why did Jesus come? There are a lot of different opinions out there, a lot of answers if you ask people that question. Um, some say that Jesus came to set an example to the world for various things. Some say that Jesus came to model humility and self-sacrifice. Some say Jesus came to model love and compassion. Some say Jesus came to model correct leadership. Um, there's been just dozens upon dozens, probably hundreds upon hundreds, of books that have been written about Jesus' leadership style. And uh, the books kind of point us to Jesus and how we should lead our ministries and lives and families and corporations and companies and, and what have you. Uh, some say that Jesus came uh, to teach us how to be moral, upright citizens. Some say that Jesus came to care for the poor and the downtrodden. Some say Jesus came to heal the sick, the lame, and the demon-possessed. Some say that Jesus came to fix all our problems. Some say that Jesus came to bring about financial prosperity. Some say Jesus came to bring peace into the world. Some say Jesus came to bring justice and to rewrite every wrong. And some say that Jesus came to bring purpose. Although some of these things may be true, they all fall short of the true reason why Jesus came. The Bible is very, very clear about why Jesus came. We find the answers to the great question, to that great question, in places like Matthew one twenty one and Luke 2.11, Luke 19.10, and John 3.17 quickly read them. Matthew one twenty one, She will bear a son, speaking of Mary, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Luke 2.11, for unto you, and we read this earlier today, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what? The lost. John 3.17, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The Bible is pretty clear that Jesus came as the Savior. Now, before talking about salvation, I'd like to first illustrate why we need a Savior. Um, for the average person, uh, 
this makes no sense that we would need a Savior because they don't understand or know why we need to be saved. Most people don't believe we need to be saved. Most people don't feel that they need to be saved from anything. They see themselves as being perfectly right and okay and as good citizens, good people, what have you, law-abiding citizens. Um, And so we need to first establish a biblical rationale for why humanity needs saving before we can really talk about the salvation that Jesus came to bring. A proper understanding of the fall of man and of human depravity is necessary to understanding the incarnation, that God came as a man. It's necessary in understanding the saving work of Jesus Christ. If we fail to understand the height from which we fell and the true effects and pervasiveness of sin, we simply cannot understand what Christ has done. Today, sin and depravity are downplayed. They're downplayed in culture, community, and communities and culture, neighborhoods, countries, where have you. Uh, these things are downplayed even in churches. Um, Sin and depravity are touted as a hindrance, as a disease, or as a slight problem. Uh, People in and out of the church believe that they are inherently good and capable of earning a righteous standing before God through their good works. But the Bible makes this very clear. It's very explicit about how this is not true. Now let me begin to illustrate the truth about sin and depravity, about our position, about our condition as human beings. I'll start by asking another question. It's rhetorical. I'll answer it with several points from the scripture. What happened at the fall of man? Well, the first thing that we recognize from scripture is that And this really ushered in and brought the fall. It caused the fall of mankind. It caused sin and depravity to enter the world. Number one would be Adam and Eve transgressed or violated God's law and covenant of works. Uh, That was the starting point for sin and depravity for the fall. God had established a covenant of works with Adam and Eve based upon one very important and yet simple law. If they obeyed the law, the covenant would remain intact. If they disobeyed the law, the covenant would be broken. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement between two parties. God had made a covenant with Adam and Eve. Uh, Let's take a look at in Scripture where God issued the law and his covenant with Adam and Eve. It's in Genesis 2, 16-17. Uh, It reads, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. So what we have here is we have the first law issued to humanity, to human beings, to Adam and Eve, And the law is do not eat from the tree of uh, good and or the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden. So they had all this uh, creation around them that they could eat from and enjoy and 
nourish themselves with, but there was one tree in particular that they were not supposed to eat from. And so God had set forth a law before them saying, you can do these things, but do not do this. Uh, the covenant that he had made with them, um, we'll talk about in a moment more, but the covenant that he had made with them essentially said that if you um, obey my singular law, my one law, then you shall live, that you shall prosper, that you shall multiply and be blessed and enjoy fellowship with me and prosperity and blessedness and, you know, peace and, and all of the things that were necessary to their lives. If they broke the law, broke the covenant, they would be severed from God. And then it says in the text of 17, Genesis 2, that we just read, you shall surely die. What did he mean? That you shall surely die. Well, first of all, they would die spiritually. They would separate themselves from God in a spiritual sense. Um, the Spirit of God was nourishing and carrying them along, and they would sever that connection between the Spirit of the living, all-powerful, all-knowing, amazing God, Creator God, and their spirit would certainly die, become depraved and dead. And so if they were to do such a thing, they would break the law. They, if they were to do that, uh, break the law, they would surely die, lose the blessed position with God, lose relationship with him and all these things. There's the covenant. Be blessed if you obey. Be cursed if you don't. And then we see over in Genesis 3, 6 to 7, Adam and Eve transgressed or broke the law and the covenant. Uh, Genesis 3, 6 to 7 reads, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, to her eyes in particular, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then it says in verse 7 of chapter 3 of Genesis, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So here we see the breach of God's law and the throwing away of the covenant that he made with them. Um, the 16th century theologian and bishop of Armagh, James Usher, developed at length a really an amazing description of how Adam and Eve violated all ten commandments with the breaking of this one law. Um, this is just kind of illustrates how serious this breach of God's law and covenant was, but he wrote, the first commandment, he, speaking of Adam, broke by choosing him another God when he followed the counsel of Satan. The second commandment he broke was in idolizing his palate, making a God of his belly by eating the forbidden fruit. The third, by believing not God's threatening, therein taking his name in vain. The fourth, by breaking the sinless rest in which he had been placed. The fifth, thereby dishonoring his father in heaven. The sixth, by slaying himself and all his posterity. The seventh, by committing spiritual adultery and preferring the creature above the creator. The eighth, by laying hands upon, uh, upon to which he had no right. 
The ninth, by accepting the serpent's false witness against God. And the tenth and final one he lists, by coveting that which God had not given to him. Now, by transgressing or breaking God's law and breaking God's covenant, number two happened. Are you ready? Adam and Eve thrust themselves and their posterity into sin, death, and judgment. Uh, When we think of their posterity, posterity simply means that all people, all of humanity, every single human being that's ever lived has essentially come through Adam and Eve, and that's what posterity means. It means all people. And so when Adam and Eve sinned and broke God's covenant, uh, they broke God's law, brought God's covenant for all of humanity, for all people. Um, they, the fact that all people came through Adam and Eve means that all people are sinners, just as they were. And so all of Adam and Eve's posterity has been thrust into sin, death, and into judgment, into God's judgment. Uh, Romans 5.12 says, Sin came into the world through one man, Adam. Uh, we just read about that. And then, it's, and then he, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote, And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Uh, one of the uh, most spectacular visible signs that people are sinners is the fact that they all die because sin brought death into the world. And 100% of you know, 100% of people essentially die a physical death. And that is the great sign that they are all sinners because death came because of sin. Uh, Death is the ultimate consequence of sin. And I'm speaking of physical death here, although it does mean spiritual death as well. Uh, Romans 3.23 says simply, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Apostle Paul again says here that all people are sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Why? Because of Adam and Eve? Certainly because we're part of their posterity, but also because we're sinners and we love sin. Uh, We cannot blame our position solely on Adam and Eve because we all love sin, because we're all depraved and sinners. Um, Acts 17, 30 to 31. It says, The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Notice how it says all people everywhere. People from every walk of life. People from every tongue and tribe. Why? Why do all people? Why does God call all people to repent? Because all people are sinners. All people are guilty. All people are condemned. All people are depraved and sinful. So God calls people from all tongues and tribes, all nations, all lands, all uh, countries and states and cities and what have you. And it says, because why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has pointed, speaking of Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising Jesus from the dead. God calls for people from throughout the entire globe to repent. Why? Because as Romans 3.23 says, they're all sinners and fall short of his glory. As Romans 5.12 says, sin came into the world through Adam and has spread to all people, all sinners. 
The third thing that happened at the fall, Adam and Eve marred, distorted the image God gave them. Uh, if we look at Genesis 1.26, we see something quite extraordinary. Uh, it says, Then God said, and this is during creation when God was creating all things, Then God said, Let us make man after our likeness, or some translations say, in our image. God created man with his own image. Does that mean that we look just like God physically? No, not necessarily. But it means that we have been created in his likeness, um, that we have a mind and can think, and we have emotions and can feel, and we have, um, you know, uh, we have a conscience, and we have these things and this ability to know right from wrong and all of these things that are uh, essentially attributes of, of God in some way, shape, or form. God is a spirit, obviously. He is spirit, but uh, we bear his likeness in so many ways. He is a triune being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We are triune beings. We have a spirit, an emotional base, and a physical body, and, and those things as well. So God made us in his image, and yet Adam and Eve marred the image God gave them. Now, why did God create Adam and Eve? Why has God created humanity, people, in his own image? Well, the answer is very clear and simple. He did it so that they, so that humans, so that people, so that Adam and Eve could reflect his love, goodness, holiness, righteousness, and glory to one another and to creation. But Adam's sin marred that perfect image, that image of God. Uh, when men look upon men today and ever since the fall, they do not see an image of the good and perfect creator God. Instead, uh, they see animal-like creatures, if you will, Animal-like creatures that are malevolent, hateful, bloodthirsty, violent, murderous, lustful, adulterous, perverted, pornographic, sexually immoral, greedy, selfish, drunken, addicted, abusive, arrogant, prideful, profane, blasphemous, idolatrous, wicked, devilish covetous, envious, hypocritical, deceptive, and so on and so forth. I mean, the list could go on and on and on. When we look upon each other, that is ultimately what we see. We see liars. We see thieves. We see sinners. We do not see uh, the image of God in the way that we should. There are around 7 billion image bearers in the world today. Seven billion men, women, and children that have been created to mirror their beautiful creator God, their beautiful, holy, righteous, loving, good creator God. Each of us is supposed to be a living and breathing testimony to God's love and goodness. But that is not the testimony that we share with others. 
as fallen image bearers, we project a creator God that is like us, filled with vileness, wickedness, debased, and depraved. The fourth thing that happened at the fall is that Adam and Eve forfeited their divinely appointed roles as God's managers and stewards on earth. What were Adam and Eve appointed to do? The answer is found in Genesis 1.27 and then over in chapter 2, verse 15. One twenty-seven says, or actually I think it's one twenty-six. it says, And let them have dominion, this is God speaking in a triune way to the Holy Spirit, to the Son, he is saying, and let them, let man, let Adam and Eve have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then if we swing over to Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. God gave humanity the special responsibility to manage and care for his creation. Um, he called for Adam and Eve to exercise dominion over the earth, over the animal kingdom. And dominion means management responsibility. It means to manage and to exercise, literally to exercise an extremely high level of authority over that which has been placed under them for the glory of God. Uh, essentially, we would say that Adam and Eve were called to be uh, God's managers on earth, to manage creation, to tend to it for him, for his namesake, and for his glory. But as sinners, we do not manage it for him. Instead, we have attempted to seize the earth from him so that we can exploit it for our own selfish gain. We pillage the earth for its resources so that we can improve our profits and bank accounts. We detonate destructive bombs, destroy forests, we spill oil, and you might recall what happened in the Gulf of Mexico a few years ago, which was a travesty. We exhaust resources, we bring animals, beautiful animals that God has created, we bring them to extinction, wiping them out, we dump chemicals, we pollute the air, we destroy the very creation, the very environment that God entrusted to our care for his glory. And we even develop the land and build structures to uh, reflect our own glory. I'm reminded of the Tower of Babel, where, you know, all of humanity came together in one particular city of Babel and, and built a tower up into the heavens to reflect their own glory and own position and pride and ability and 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 that's exactly what we do you know so ultimately we have been charged with the responsibility to manage the earth to exercise authority on God's behalf and to manage and tend the earth uh, for his glory and we have done quite the opposite we have even worshipped the creation um, 
It says, I believe in Romans, that we worship the creation rather than the creator. We worship the animals. We worship the plants and trees and mountains and planets. And we call it, you know, the, the God of this world, we call it Mother Earth. And we worship her and you know, sing praises to her and thank her. And then we have Mother Nature and we have all this idolatry and things that are playing out. Um, we have essentially thrown away, jettisoned our responsibility uh, as people uh, that are to exercise dominion, as managers for God, and we have thrown away our responsibility and seized the earth for ourselves, made it our own creation, and we use and utilize it for our own means. Uh, we exploit it for its resources and all of these other things. It's no wonder that Romans eight nineteen to 22 says this, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, Adam, who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In a way, creation wants to spit out man because of what we've done to it. In response to these things, in response to our rebellion against God, R.C. Sproul wrote, as God's created image bearers, we have committed the highest act of divine treason against him. No wonder Hebrews 10.31 says something. It says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As you can see, sin and depravity are not a trifle thing. They are not a mild thing. They are not a mere hindrance, disease, or slight problem. Sin is infinitely worse than we believe it to be. Sproul is right. It is an act of divine treason against our holy and perfect creator, God. Now, unless something is done about this, we will face and receive God's full justice and judgment. We deserve those things, don't we? Have you not heard what I just said that we did? And believe me, it's far worse than what I just recited to you. I gave you four simple points marring the image, throwing away the covenant, transgressing his perfect law, throwing away our responsibility to manage on his behalf, reflecting his glory, the treason that we have committed against him, the vileness of it. He is an undeserving God, full of love, full of provision and blessing. And look at how we have treated him. Sin is infinitely worse than we believe it to be. Unless something is done, we will receive what is due to us, and that is his justice and judgment. We deserve these things. Now, there is, however, good news. And the good news is that God came to earth and became a man so that he could secure salvation for sinners and reconcile them unto God. 
Christmas is a celebration of the one whom God sent as our deliverer, Jesus Christ. Christmas is a celebration of the deliverer's entrance into our world. The question now becomes, what did Jesus do to bring salvation and reconciliation between God and man? What did he do to fix this awful mess? I'm going to share with you three very, very important doctrinal truths. You need to pay very close attention. First, Jesus made a penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitution derives from the idea that divine forgiveness must satisfy divine justice. That is, that God is not willing or able to simply forgive sin without first requiring a satisfaction for it. Penal substitution states that God gave himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to suffer the death, punishment, and curse due to fallen humanity as the penalty for our sin. Atonement is a doctrine or the doctrine that describes how human beings can be reconciled to God. In Christian theology, the atonement refers to the forgiving or pardoning of sin through the death of Jesus Christ by crucifixion, which made possible the reconciliation between God and creation. Now, let's break down all three of these quickly. Penal means to be punished. Sinners deserve to be punished by God for their high treason and sin, do they not? We see what we have done. It's very clear to us. I certainly hope it is. Penal means to be punished. Substitutionary means in the place of sinners. As an act of God's mercy, God put his son on the cross in our place. In other words, God substituted his son for us. It should be us that was hanging on that, receiving those death blows and judgment and wrath of God. Why? Because of the things that we have done. Because of what Adam and Eve did. That's what substitutionary means. Now, atonement means to pay the required price for reconciliation. In order for God's justice to be fully satisfied, for our sins to be permanently forgiven, wiped out, and for us to be fully reconciled to God, an infinitely high price, an extraordinarily high price had to be paid. The blood of bulls was not enough. God created a sacrificial system as a temporary means. But the blood of bulls was not enough to bring this thing into completion. Our obedience and works are not enough. Never will be. They are nothing more than filthy rags. Someone had to pay this infinitely high price, a special someone. And Jesus was sent to do so. And at the cross, he paid the final price and made the final atonement with his own precious blood. And this is why the church sings, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Verses that this doctrine comes forth from are verses like Romans 5.10, which says, We were once enemies of God, 
image breakers, covenant breakers, enemies, enemies, enemies. And it says, but have been reconciled to him through the death of his son, Christ Jesus. The death made that atonement with his own blood. He paid it, poured out of his own body. He paid the price for the full atonement. 2 Corinthians 5.18, we have been reconciled to God through who? Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.19-20, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What is he saying? Reconciliation comes through the blood of Jesus, which was shed at Calvary. He paid the price. He was our penal substitute, making an everlasting and completed atonement, finished. His blood was the highest price paid, and God said, done. It's quite amazing. What a miraculous thing that Jesus has done. Now, the penal substitutionary atonement wasn't the only thing Jesus did. Number two, Jesus fulfilled the law and covenant of works. As I said, God made a covenant of works with Adam and Eve based upon obedience to his law. If they obeyed, they would be blessed and live. If they disobeyed, they would surely die. They chose to disobey and therefore died spiritually, were booted from the garden, and then died physically later on. They flushed the covenant. They flushed the law. Later on, God made additional works-based covenants with Abraham and Moses. He gave them laws to follow like circumcision in the Ten Commandments. If the people obeyed the laws, they would prosper and live. And these are covenant laws. If they disobeyed, they would be excluded from the assembly or expelled from the promised land or even put to death if the violation required it. Now, this is so vital for us to understand, friends. The covenants God made based on works and obedience to law, His law, transcend those whom they were originally given to. In other words, they were not just for the ancient people, but for all people. This means that we are all required to uphold the covenant of works through obedience to the law. We are required to obey covenant law, the Ten Commandments. And what are they? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image, no idolatry. You shall not take my name in vain. You shall not, or you shall actually, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You shall honor your father and mother. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet Envy what others have, wanting to take it from them. Are you guilty of breaking one or more of these? Everyone breaks them. Well, I, you know, I've never murdered anyone. Have you ever hated anyone? Yeah, you murdered them. Well, I've never cheated on my wife and committed adultery. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? Absolutely, you've committed adultery. Have you ever thought ill thoughts about your parents? Never. Yeah, right. I was a teenager for crying out loud. I wanted to kill my mom. There were times it was just like, ah! I murdered her in my mind, in my heart. You shall have no other gods before me. 
I tell you right now, for 30 some odd years of my life, you know who God was? This guy right here. I worship myself like you can't imagine. I worship the girlfriends that I had and vehicles and, and toys and all these things. In some way or another, we have all broken God's covenant laws. We are all covenant breakers. Are you guilty of breaking one or more of these? Some of you are thinking, man, I, if there were 12 of them, I nailed them. Give me 22 of them. Double them. Give me double or nothing. Double or nothing, I'm black. Now, the Bible points this out in many places. If you don't think that you're guilty, just in case, Isaiah 24, 5, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. The group's over there. We've all broken law. We've all broken covenant. We've all gone astray. We've all gone our own way. We've all walked from God. In fact, we've never even walked with him. We just continually walk away from him. Romans 3.10, no one, no one, no one is righteous, not one. Hosea 6, 7, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. We're all guilty of breaking God's laws. We're all guilty of breaking God's covenant. As good as we may believe we are, even if you're pretty good at walking the walk and talking the talk and doing all things right and being what you think is a good person, no matter what you think about yourself, the sin and depravity and death of Adam and Eve is imputed to you. It's there. Before you take your first sin, you're a sinner. I used to tell this to youth all the time as a youth pastor. How many sins does it make to make, how many sins does it take to make you a sinner? And they'd usually go, one, some kids, four, you know. No, you don't have to sin to be a sinner. Sin is imputed to you through Adam. You were born a sinner. You were a sinner in the womb. Probably back talking your mom right in there on the tube. Send down some jalapenos, you know. This is not good enough. I mean, it's just a reality. We are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. None of us reach his level of righteousness. And quite frankly, in our own Adamic nature, none of us want to. We want what we want. We have all gone astray. We're all guilty, therefore, and subject to God's wrath, justice, and judgment. Now, the good news is, is that Jesus succeeded where Adam, Eve, and everyone else failed. Jesus, who is called the second Adam, retrieved the covenant of works and the law and obeyed them perfectly. In other words, Jesus did what Adam, Eve, and everyone else could not and cannot do. When pressed by the religious leaders, Jesus declared in Matthew 5, 17, I love this passage, 
He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. And what would happen was the religious leaders would watch him just, you know, not obey their traditions and these things that they added to the law. And Jesus wouldn't pay attention to those things. And they thought that Jesus was a lawbreaker, that he had come to get rid of the law. They criticized him for that. And he says this to them in response, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. I, in other words, I came to do what fallen sinners, including you guys who are harassing me, I came to do what they and you could never do for yourselves, and that is fulfill the law perfectly. He never sinned. He never broke a law. Jesus, now since Jesus obeyed the covenant and law perfectly, and he really fulfilled the covenants of God in his person, Because he did these things, he earned a perfect righteous standing before God, which was what Adam had before he sinned and fell. According to God's redemptive plan, his economy and redemption, how he works things out, the atonement, okay, this final sacrifice and payment, had to be made by a perfectly righteous person. Why? Because sin entered the world through one who had been created perfectly righteous. Adam was perfect. He had no defect. But he was deceived into using his fully functional free will to sin rather than to obey and worship God. In contrast, the second Adam, Jesus, chose not to sin even when tempted. He chose obedience. He chose worship. And his righteousness then qualified him to fulfill the role of the Redeemer and Reconciler. In other words, he earned the right to make an atonement and reconciliation on sinful man's behalf between man and God because of his perfect righteousness. He did what Adam was commanded and called to do. And Adam failed and said, I don't care. This is what's so great. Now here's the trick. Perfect righteousness is still required for a relationship with God. Did you hear me? Perfect righteousness is requisite for knowing and loving and being in relationship with God. Without it, there is no relationship. But since we cannot attain perfect righteousness on our own, We must rely on someone else to provide it. That is truly the heart of Christianity, friends. And that leads to my last point. Number three, Jesus imputed his perfect righteousness to our account or to the account of sinners. We have No righteousness, you've got to get this, we have no righteousness of our own. Our account is flat, broke, and empty. We are bankrupt. Because of Adam, Eve, and our own sin, we have nothing. In fact, the only thing we do have is the imputed sin and depravity of Adam, as I mentioned. Our greatest deeds and works of righteousness and niceness and goody-two-shoeness and all these things are but filthy rags before a holy, perfect, righteous God. In fact, everything offered up to God apart from faith in Jesus Christ 
everything that we do to please him and to serve him apart from faith in Christ, these good works, all that we do is added to our own condemnation. That's what it says in Romans 14, 23. Now think about that. All of your faithless striving and good effort and good works and trying to treat people okay and trying to be moral and all that, all it does when you do those things outside of faith in Jesus is add to your own punishment and condemnation and devastation. The very good that you do will be used against you in the court of the Most High because those things are done out of faith, without faith, apart from faith, in your own strength, thinking that you can do it, thinking that you yourself have this incredible power and ability and righteousness to please a holy, perfect God when you're nothing more than a martyr of his image, you know, someone who has thrust his covenant and laws and said, forget you, I'm living for myself. All that you do will be used against you, in particular, the good. And yet we live in a nation that believes the antithesis to that. I know one day when I cross over those pearly gates, Peter will give me some pounds and let me in. Why? Because I've done a lot of good things. And if there were a scale up there, they'd see all the good on one side and the bad on the other, and the good would just, boom, it would just outweigh the bad. That's American Christianity. That's American religion that teaches that. Works righteousness. Where did we come up with that idea? Satan? The devil, we've taken some biblical truths and manipulated them to say what we want them to say. I don't know how we've come up with it, but that's, I mean, for crying out loud, isn't that the lie of the serpent in the garden? You shall be, you'll make your own way. You'll be your own God. You'll take care of yourself. You do your own thing. You'll have your own righteousness. You'll know all things. Isn't that his original lie that caused them to be deceived and to fall to begin with? That's where it originates. But in our world, more particular in this nation of milk and honey and blessing and provision and consumerism and all these other things that aren't good. Wow, that's our belief system here. The good will outweigh the bad. And God's just going to have to be cool with me because of this. No, he's going to take them both and combine them and say, here's your account. Now you're paying the price away from me. I never knew you. Go to your torment for everlasting destruction. And we just keep cranking out this lie. All of our faithless striving and effort only adds to our own condemnation. The more good you do, the more it will be used against you in the court of the Most High. That's a terrifying thought, especially in this nation where the largest religion is personal perfection and works righteousness, earning. Millions here are trying to earn their way with God but truly, as the scripture makes so clear, and this is the grace of God making this clear, because he is unwilling that any would perish, truly, this is a lie from the devil, and it's not the way that it works. We have nothing to offer God that will appease or satisfy him. We have committed divine treason. We are nothing more than insurrectionists and rebels lest we be in Christ. One of the most beautiful gospel doctrines is the doctrine that we are studying, and that is the doctrine of imputation. 
It teaches that Christ removed our sin, removed our sin debt, flushed our account, and then applied his perfect righteousness to our account, filled it to overflowing with the righteousness of his person, the righteousness that he earned through perfect obedience, the righteousness that he earned through doing what we could never do. Imputation means I remove your sin and I give you my righteousness. Why? So that you can be reconciled to God. Imputation teaches that Christ removed our sin debt and then applied his perfect righteousness to our account. Imputation teaches that at the cross, Jesus traded, literally, this is crazy, miracle, unbelievable, it's what he did. He traded his perfect righteousness for the sins of his people. Why would he ever do such a thing? Because God is love. Because God is grace. Because God is mercy. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, and imputation is found in many, many passages. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There it is. There's an exchange that took place on that bloody, sacrificial, splinter-ridden cross, a trade perfect righteousness for heathen, for heathen rebelness, whatever the word would be. That's a, I made it up. Trading your sin. For his righteousness. The kind of righteousness that we need is only available in Jesus Christ. We simply cannot find it in any other religion. We cannot earn it and we cannot purchase it. Now let's do a quick recap. Adam and Eve transgressed God's law and covenant. Adam and Eve thrust themselves and their posterity into sin, death, and judgment, all of us. Adam and Eve marred the image God gave them. People don't emulate God's glory and beauty. They emulate death and Satan and sin and perversion. And, and you Just think of how God feels about that with all these image bearers running around doing what they're doing. I can't believe we're breathing right now. Adam and Eve marred the image God gave them. Adam and Eve forfeited their divinely appointed roles as God's managers and stewards on earth, threw away their job, threw away their responsibility, turned on creation and began to exploit it for themselves. All of humanity is guilty of that. But the good news is Jesus came to restore what had been lost between God and man through his redeeming and reconciling work, through his atonement and the things that he did. What were they? Jesus made a penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus fulfilled the law and covenant of works, did what we could never do. Jesus imputed his righteousness, perfect righteousness, to the account of sinners, to our account. We become righteous because of him. We are made righteous because of him. And because of that imputation, God will accept us and adopt us as his sons and daughters. In ending, I'd like to ask 
a question and then it's rhetorical and I'd like to answer it for you. This is critical. Pay close attention. How can a transgressing, covenant-breaking, sinful image-bearing forfeiter get saved and rescued from impending justice and become reconciled to God? The answer is simple. Through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance means to turn from the sins of self-reliance, to turn from the sin of works righteousness, trying to earn your way, turn from the sin of good works and personal effort. You must realize that you cannot save yourself. You must realize that salvation is in Christ alone. You must receive Jesus Christ by faith. Believe on Him. Now friends, we are saved by works. The works of Christ. Not our own. He came and did what we could never do. He came and did what we chose not to do. And he came and did it to restore us unto God and to reconcile us to God, to make us perfectly righteous before God. And let me tell you right now, salvation is wonderful, the everlasting effects of it. And so often we only talk about what Christ has done for the by and by, for the later on. When we breathe our last breath, we'll be with him in glory. What a marvelous thing that is. But salvation is for now. The joy the peace, the sweetness of a relationship with God. It's indescribable. Salvation is now. And if you repent of your self-reliance and works-based righteousness in those things and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the finished work of Jesus, believing that he lived that perfect life, that he died on a cross for your sin, that he resurrected for your salvation, he will grant you that life and reconciliation with God. And everything will change. The Bible says you will become a new creation. You will have new desires, a new love for God, a love for God's church, a love for truth, a love for righteousness, a love for his word, a love for one another. You will begin to see the world differently. Your worldview will change. 